0: I love um, the songs that we sing here. I love them because they are so descriptive of the gospel and of uh, our relationship between us and God himself, the characteristics that we're talking about, that God is faithful, um, the song before that, that he is stronger. I, and I love that, even just that phrase, that he is stronger. It made me think of... Um, The phrase that John the Baptist used uh, when the religious elite of the day came to see John the Baptist and say, are you the Messiah? He said, no, I'm not the one. I'm just preparing the way for the one who is, uh, that's going to come. And uh, speaking of Jesus. And then he says that little phrase that, you know, I must decrease and he must increase. And I love that. And I think, man, what a mantra for you and your life, uh, me and my life to say that I must decrease while he, Jesus, increases. And I think that is the battle, that's the rub that we all feel if you're trying to live a Christian life. You battle against sin and selfishness all the time. And certainly in marriage, as we talk about marriage over, uh, you know, today. And, you know, we're going to try to cram a lot of talk into 40 minutes or so. But maybe that would be our prayer, that even in marriage, as one of the institutions that reveal our selfishness. And not just marriage, but any relationship. You know what kills relationships is sin and selfishness when you want to rise up and claim your own glory above someone else's and certainly above God. So uh, I invite you just to pray with me and maybe you haven't taken a moment with God yet this morning and maybe you're not even a believer in this room, you're just kind of checking things out. Um, this is a great place to do that and we're going to read from God's word and uh, we as believers feel like God's word. We know that it is our ultimate authority in life and what it speaks to and that's why we dig into it and we're going to kind of be all over the place in it today Uh, but let's pray for a minute and as uh, i pray aloud maybe you would just take a moment and pray silently and just ask god to speak to you in a very clear um, way about uh, some steps that he might have you take because of the truth revealed father you're good to us you are faithful as we've just sung about you are stronger Lord, I confess personally uh, just my own sin and selfishness that gets in the way and fractures relationship and harms those that you've um, planted me close to, so I'll be a light for you. I pray, Father, you speak to us this morning. You reveal yourself to us through the person of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the face of Jesus for us that we would see him amongst all the small and false idols that we tend to surround ourselves with. May we see him high and lifted up and may our vision of him get brighter and clearer that we would turn from the smaller things and we would worship him. Lord, lead us to repentance through your kindness as you do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Uh, Amen. We're going to be, as I said earlier, kind of uh, all over the place, uh, mostly in Ephesians 5 and uh, in Colossians, uh, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, and we're going to kind of jump around. Um, I think this, again, is applicable to everybody in the room, married or not married, um, because uh, for single people, I think you should take note of this and set your lives towards this trajectory, look for these qualities in a mate. Don't settle for anyone who is pursuing anything less than this, anything less than God as the all-satisfying desire of their hearts. I think for those, um, uh, even teenagers in here, what a great message to hear and to see and to set the trajectory of your hearts towards finding someone like this. And so when we, when we jump in, typically in marriage, this is what we've done in the past, we kind of go to the three or four main marriage passages we go to Ephesians, we go to Colossians, we go to First Peter 3, we go back to Genesis, we, we run to those. And, and that's not a bad thing, but the Bible's not an encyclopedia that you look up under the term marriage and you see, right? The, 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 the Bible is this story, this origin to destiny, story of redemption. And in fact, it's really more than a story, it's a story with God's notes in it. So as God tells the story, and then he makes it very practical and applicable for us. That means we can't understand what the Bible has to say about marriage by looking only at the marriage passages because there's a vast amount of biblical information about marriage that's not found in those specific passages. As a matter of fact, there's 41 one another's in Scripture that talk about how we should relate to other believers. And although that is true, it even says, what does it say in Romans, to, you know, to honor one another above yourself. That's true in just in a general sense of believers, but it's, you know, it's so practical in marriage. It's one thing to try to outdo one another in honor in your community group when you meet once a week or on Sunday morning, it's pretty easy to do this because you don't have to do life. But, the, but in marriage, you know, there's this, uh, this the lab, right? You're like living this out in this lab all the time and it's not a decision you have to make once a week to outdo one another showing honor. It's a decision you have to make every day and not just even every day, every day when you're at your worst, always doing this. It is something that reveals to us Where our heart really is. And I say all that to say, you know, there's really no simple steps that you're going to walk out of here today that immediately fix your marriage. Now, there's some of God's truths that will help. Perhaps there are some steps and commitments that we could make. And we're going to talk about those that are going to help marriage. And they're going to help you flourish based upon God's design. But God's purpose goes beyond our personal happiness and comfort. There's no fast and easy steps to a more exciting love life or simple steps to create happier marriages. Perhaps God's plan for marriage is this, to use the challenge, joys, struggles, and celebrations of marriage to draw closer to God and to grow in Christian character. And even as we talked about last week, I'm going to tell you two things you need to know Two things you need to know and five things you need to do. And again, let me say this. These aren't simple steps, and you can probably add to these. Um, these are kind of directions that we're going to take in these commitments, directions we're going to take. Let me say also, um, too, as we kind of hear the kids, um, you know, there's no tornadoes coming that we know of. Uh, those are the four-year-olds upstairs. Um, and so that's cool. They're, ha- they're having fun. They're learning a lot. Um, if I know there's a storm kind of out to our west a little bit. If it does uh, come, we'll all gather in those bathrooms. And that would be very awkward. Somebody might say, I'd just rather die out here. That's um, <laughs> all good. That's happened one time in our journey where we had to uh, like hunker down. Very awkward. Um, let's try to outdo one another in an honor in that situation, right? That'd be awesome. Two things you need to know and five things you need to do. My, my, my purpose this morning is to encourage and equip you. Um, in doing this. I I can't fight the fights that you're going to fight in marriage um, and there will be fights. Any healthy marriage is going to have some disagreement, going to have some conflict and hopefully going to have conflict resolution. But two things you need to know and five things you do. First uh, thing you need to know is that marriage is not about your happiness. I say this so that your expectation will be more in line with the truth. Unrealistic expectations always leads to disappointment and frustration. Unrealistic expectations always lead to disappointment and frustration. And there's a view the world sells us, right? This romantic view of marriage that is when you get into marriage that you're always supposed to have the, the butterflies, um, you know, that it's, everything is, is, is just great, that after, you know, the, 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 the honeymoon, it just kind of continues on. And there are glimpses of that in every marriage, certainly, but it's so much deeper than that. It's not all romance and butterflies, right? We would, we would love it to be that, but it's not. We go to the movies. We love to see happy endings. We love to see, this is the typical plot of most movie lines, right? There's like one major obstacle, right? And there's the crisis and then, you know, the man and the woman have got to kind of overcome the crisis. He needs to tell the truth about his past. As soon as he does that, you don't have to lie to her. She's going to accept him anyway, and they're going to live happily ever after, right? That's kind of like the gist, and you just kind of change the plot just a little bit, and that fits. Mo- and we love it if it ends, he, you know, she t- he tells the truth. She accepts him and extends grace. They're going to be a perfect couple. Now, here's the problem with that, is that marriage is like that scenario every day of your life, right? It's not just tell the truth once. It's every day of your life you have to come to the grips of I need to be truthful and honest and the other one has to reciprocate with grace and acceptance and and so so Hollywood in essence kind of sells us the wrong expectations and that always leads to frustration and disappointment we live in a world that still sadly is terribly broken and your marriage will not escape its brokenness We live with flawed people. Your marriage will not be protected from those flaws. We're two sinners living in a sinful world, often often having a house full of little sinner kids. (laughs) You could say that twice, the sinner kids part. Right? Conflict is going to happen. And when it happens, when the romantic feelings don't seem very close, right, the goal here is don't bail on that. You're right where you need to be because God uses marriage as the greatest tool to expose your own selfishness and to lead you to repentance. As long as we're two sinners living in a fallen world, there's going to be work to do. Sometimes that means being willing to serve when it's the last thing we want to do. Sometimes it means being willing to listen when our instinct is to argue. Sometimes it means being being willing to love even when those moments even in those moments when the other doesn't seem deserving of your love. Sometimes it means to humbly ask for forgiveness when we're tempted to argue and fight that we're right. Sometimes it means being willing to go through moments of tension so that the truth can get on the table. Sometimes it means being willing to overlook minor offenses for the flourishing of your spouse. There's one thing we know for sure, that as we rest in God's grace, we're called to give grace to one another. Our home should be grace labs where where it's just played out over and over and over. Our home should be a testimony to the world. That's in the passage that Jason read. That that God looked over everything and the highest ideal that he could come as an illustration to God's love for us or specifically Christ's love for the church was that of marriage. And as a husband husband and wife, as, as they... As they offend one another and as they reconcile and forgive and show grace, that should be a testament to the world that this is who God is like. He's like one who has been offended by our sin, but instead of reciprocating his wrath on us, he extended the arm of grace and salvation to us so that we could be reconciled back to him. And every marriage should be a display case for that very thing of grace and reconciliation. We rest in his grace. We're called to give grace to one another. I think there are two lenses that we look through. Paul Tripp mentions this in his book, uh, What Did You Expect? It's a great mar- uh, a book on marriage. What did you expect? I, I love that phrase. What did you expect? Not this. Um, I think there are two lenses he talks about we look through. The first is the personal happiness paradigm. This is the lens we look through or the worldview that we have that everything in life um, is, is about my happiness runs through this filter of will this make me happy happiness is not bad it's just the wrong goal in life trip says or maybe not just the wrong goal it's too small of a goal this is what he says about that i have this quote on the screen god is working on something deep necessary and eternal if he was not working on this he would not be faithful to his promises to you God is transforming you into the image of his son. And this is how good God is, right? That he uses difficulty of life, even difficulty in marriage, but even greater than that, just difficulty. And trials and tribulations and just tough weeks at work and a boss that doesn't understand. And a bad report from the doctor that God said didn't necessarily cause those things, but he can use those things to shape you into the tool that he has designed you to be so that you would be more effective in this world and that your joy would even be greater. Isn't that good? That God is so good that you have this sinfulness inside of you. And like a good surgeon, right, he takes the scalpel and he begins to cut those things out. And even though you love those things, he knows they're not best for you. And so he begins to remove them slowly and surely he cuts out and then he mends personal happiness paradigm this is what we're wired to think up through this is the result of the fall all of us are just born in this sinful nature asking ourselves of every decision will this make me happy but the second lens that we should look through a more biblical worldview is the personal holiness paradigm That's, i know it's a really big word but what it means is that god is working through everyday circumstances to change you And he's going to do it forever, right, until we meet him. So there's no even married couples in here that have been married for 50 years that God is still not at work doing this very thing. Even though it may be hard to admit, there is still sin inside you, and sin gets away of what you were meant to be and designed to do. And by the way, sin is the biggest obstacle in marriage, keeping us from unity and understanding and love. But God is using these difficulties of the here and now to transform you, to rescue you from you. And because he loves you, he is, wi- he is willing to interrupt or compromise your momentary happiness in order to accomplish one more step in the process of rescue and transformation. Now, I know that's hard for us to wrap our minds and heads maybe even around, but I just think if you have kids that you're willing to enter in and interrupt their, their momentary happiness and what they're doing to protect them, to shield them, to grow them, and the same thing our loving Father is doing in our life. So the first thing we have to know is that, happy, that marriage is not about your happiness. The second thing we have to really know to understand is that marriage thrives within a covenant relationship. One of the reasons we named our church covenant is just this very thing. Um, it, just, it is the underlying descriptor of God's love for us. A love that is not, pre, pre, it isn't, uh, is not predicated upon us being good enough or beautiful enough. As a matter of fact, I love, we talk about this sometimes, church should not be for shiny people. Church is for people who are broken and confused and struggle with doubt that's why we're here, right? That is exactly why we're here. This is one of the most remarkable things ever been said of the God of, who made the universe loves us. And to better understand the weightiness of this, we have to understand the meaning of love. Love, as we understand it, is typically associated with feelings that come and go, right? Even all the songs are about this. But the biblical picture of love is much more breathtaking than this. When Jesus says that God so loved us, what does he mean? He means that he extended his covenant love to us. This anchor of covenant travels through all the pages of scripture. God makes a covenant with Adam and Eve and then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Solomon. Ultimately, all those who have faith in Jesus, God has made a covenant with us. And the essence of covenant is this. From Hebrews 13, I will be your God and I will also be the God of your children and you will be my people. And here we're promised God's steady presence, his enduring kindness, his relentless commitment never to leave or forsake us. Scott Sauls in his book Outside the Line talks about this. I think I have this quote on the screen. Being in covenant with God means that once we become his children, we cannot unbecome his children. In other words, we are safe with him. He will not reject us. On our best days and on our worst days, He will remain loyal to us. This is unique truth about Christianity. All the other religions of the world have to work and work and work and maybe earn the favor of the higher being and then maybe in the afterlife they will be accepted. That is not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is that we are so flawed. We are so sinful. Even on our best day, we can have no relationship with God. We are eternally separated from Him. But... God loved us to this extent that he sent his own son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died on a cross in our place, was, died and was buried and three days later rose again victorious over death and is now seated at the right hand and he is waiting to come back. To receive all of those that place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our connection back to God. That is the beauty of the gospel. And that's what it means to be in covenant relationship with him. That is the uniqueness of Christianity. That God will not push the eject button on us when we fall short of the mark. We are never on eggshells with him. Because he is the God who forgives and he is the God who stays. Just think about that. He's the God who knows you better than you know yourself, and he's still just relentlessly committed to you. Jesus is the God who stays with us 70 times 7 and then some, and for that very reason, God said that marriage was to be a covenant that mirrored God's love for his church. So in the same way, I did a wedding yesterday, and I reminded I think they bit off a little more than they chew. They didn't know me. So we went, we went through covenant love yesterday. And someone asked me, I didn't expect preaching at the wedding. I was like, then don't call me, right? That's, <laughs> that's what I do. You get someone else. In the same way that a bride commits this to, to, the, to her groom, to be in covenant, to be faithful with one another in sickness and in health, the vows you make, in joy and sorrow, for better or for worse. So God has covenanted himself to us. It's in the covenant that we can really work through difficult issues. Just think about this. If, we, if marriage was not a covenant, then you would always be so fearful of being honest with each other in fear that someone might run. If they really see who I am, then I'm going to run. So, so what do we do? We have to hide. If, covenant, if, if marriage is not covenant, I read an article, a few, uh, it was written a few years ago, I read it this week, uh, I don't know if the New York Times or one of the New York papers that talked about there should be term limits on marriage now. And marriage should only last for five years. And after five years, you could re-up because you're going to lose interest and you're going to have conflict. And I said, that is the best picture of the worldly idea of marriage. But on the other hand, we have the biblical view of marriage. It says marriage is for a lifetime. It's this idea of covenant. It doesn't matter how ugly things get, for richer or poor, for better or worse. It doesn't matter how ugly things get. I'm staying. I'm in this with you forever. That's this idea of covenant. I read, too, from a very godly uh, sociologist this week. I was reading an article about marriage. He said that he believes that couples really don't start seeing real fruit in marriage until year 15. That's when fruitfulness, those first 15 years is the roots. And many of us can take a deep breath and be like, okay, there's hope for us, right? We're going we're gonna to make this. I think that's, I think it's possibly true. And I know too, let me just say this. I don't want this to fill this weight of guilt over you. There's probably people in here that have been divorced. And, you know, let me say this. What's in the past is in the past. This is the trajectory of your life from now now on. Because you understand the grace of God here, this is the trajectory of my life forward. Okay, here's the five commitments. Two things we need to know that marriage is not about your personal happiness and you have to understand that marriage thrives within a covenant, right, relationship between you and your spouse and with God. Here are the commitments we make. First commitment is we commit to worship God and be deeply rooted in him. I wrote these out in a way that just helped me and Ashley process some of these. That maybe as you read them that you and your spouse or you could take notes in maybe a future spouse one day that y'all could kind of talk through these. You can kind of help see where you're at and where you need to kind of shore up some things. First, we commit to worship God and be deeply rooted in Him. And I think we do that in two ways. One, we see God as sovereign. We see God as sovereign. It doesn't take very long within, in a marriage that you know that you guys are walking uh, possibly on different pages. You were brought up with different cultural influences. Your parents did things differently. Um, and, and you come into a marriage and everything just kind of gets, oh, oh my goodness, I didn't even, I didn't know, I've, I've shared this before. Um, one of my, one of my very good friends, um, like the biggest fight they had that almost caused them to split up was the question of where are we going to put the bread? Like growing up, she had always put the bread in the fridge and he had always put the bread in the microwave because it was just, they would live in a small kitchen. So you just put it in the microwave because it's a place to keep it. And they were argued about, I mean, literally, knock down drag outs. I got a phone call about it, like where you put the bread. Um, it, but it, 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 I know this is so silly, but you know, this is, this is a perfect example of how Satan will get in something so silly. And just cause this great division because of something so silly. And here's what we've got to understand in order to really be deeply rooted in him. We've got to understand uh, we've, got to, we've got to understand that God is sovereign and he oversaw even the cultural upbringing of you and your spouse. And then he even saw and give, gave his blessing and thought it would be fit for you two to be together. I love how God does this. You know, we've heard this at opposites attract. I think that's basically true. You know, an introvert marries an extrovert. That's certainly true of me and Ashley. Ashley wants to go be with lots of people, and I want to go hide in a cave. Like, that's just how it is. And so she invites people over to my cave. And I'm like, no, that's not how it's supposed to work. But that's what God does, right? He brings people from separate cultural upbringings and preferences, and he brings them together. And so when things get rough, you've got to remind yourself That God is sovereign. And when you begin to celebrate the sovereignty of God. Of how he formed you and brought you and your spouse together for his glory and your good. You'll quit being irritated by your differences. And you'll start celebrating how your life has been enhanced by them. As a result, you'll not only give room to your spouse's uniqueness. You'll begin to honor him or her. And what you say and do in the moments where you're confronted with the differences. And your approach to the very same things. Got to see God as sovereign. But second thing, we got to see him as savior. And this might be the most important one. It doesn't take long to realize that you have married a sinner, and even quicker that she realized that she married a sinner. And what you do when you make this discovery will determine the character and quality of your marriage. You will only respond in a way that is right, good, and helpful to your spouse's sin, weakness, and struggle when you are celebrating the transforming grace of an ever-present, always faithful Redeemer. Worshiping God as Savior also means that you find joy in being part of God's work of grace in your spouse's life. When your spouse blows it, and he or she will, that you won't throw her sin in her face, that you will make her feel guilty for how hard her failure makes life for you, that you will not use her sins against her, you will not even keep a detailed history of her wrongs against you. Rather, you will look for ways of incarnating the transforming grace of the Savior in your spouse's life. I know, this is so easy to say and so hard to do. When she sins, you'll be ready to encourage her. When she fails, you'll be ready to restore her. When she falls, you will not treat her as less righteous than you. You will be partnering with God as an agent of grace in his or her life. Now, this, this is not how our sinful nature is wired. Our sinful nature is wired to keep a record, right? Even it, just, to, just to keep, uh, that's how we are. Even not even just with a wife, but with our kids. I caught uh, my oldest, Claire, lying to me last week on the way to church. She said something and I kind of caught her in a lie and there's something that just infuriates me and I told her we were going to stop and get donuts. And then she says, you ain't stop and get donuts. No, we'll never get donuts. None of you are going to tell lies to Dad. That's, I wanted to blow. I didn't do that. I wanted to because that's how we do it, right? If they're, if they're not extending grace to us, we don't want to extend grace back. If they're going through very difficult times and their sin is so present, we want to keep a record of wrongs and make them know how much superior we are than them. And that is not rooted in the gospel. And that will never lead to a God-honoring marriage. We've got to see Him as Savior and Savior. And the next commitment, we commit to make marriage a priority. We've talked about this before in the past, not just when you're dating, but for the rest of your life together, to make marriage a priority. And here again, this is, man, just living life. Every big obstacle kind of comes in the way of you making marriage a priority. It's funny how when you're dating that you really pursue each other. That you, you know, you look for the perfect gift on your first Valentine's Day together. You go to the perfect place. You put a lot of work into it. What well, most people do. I think I've told you before that Ash and I's first Valentine's Day, I took her to Ryan's Steakhouse. It was awesome. <laughs> and I showed up, and uh, she had, like, was dressed in the, you know, in the dress and uh, heels. And I showed up in athletic shorts and flip-flops. And she saw me, and her face just, like, dropped. I was like, oh, This is one of those kind of days. I need to, it's funny how when most of us are dating, we make such a priority to really court one another, to really please one another, to really investigate and pursue one another. But oftentimes when you get married, you feel like the pursuit is over, but it's never over. I think one of the beautiful things, I think it's beautiful now, maybe in Ashley and I's next conflict, I won't think it's beautiful. I think one of the beautiful things in marriage is how different we are. And how, how you can figure out your uh, wife and you can figure out everything about her that's really only good for about three hours. Because three hours from now, all of that might change again. With every kid uh, that we've had, that Ashley's uh, tastes change or desires change, everything changes. It's like this new mystery that we have to continue working at to kind of find her heart and what makes it tick and how I can be an agent of grace to her. We've got to make marriage a priority. That's so evident in the scripture that Jason read. Said in the same ways in Ephesians 5 in the same ways, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Then he used this covenant language, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. I love that kind of, maybe you've heard it, right? The leave and and cleave in the old King James. Leave, it says here, and hold fast. He's going to leave his father and mother. He's going to hold fast to his wife. This picture that this is the number one physical relationship you have. I also read a while back that the average married couple spends four minutes a day in face-to-face communication. Four minutes a day. Healthy marriages cannot live on four minutes a day. Thriving, God-honoring marriages have to have priority. They have to be invested in. But you know what's probably true of most of us in this room, that marriage is often what we do in between all the other things that we're doing. And it's all those other things that determine the content and pace of our schedules. So that our marriage, the health of our marriage, becomes a slave to everything else that we do. But marriage doesn't function very well being an in-between thing. Marriages surely don't tend to thrive when we leave them alone and ask them to grow on their own. A marriage that is going to grow, going to change, and become increasingly healthy needs cultivation. Make marriage a priority. As Ash and I evaluated some of these very things, this is probably one that we probably ranked lowest on the list. Because life happens. And before we know it, we're doing marriage right in between all the other things. The next commitment is we need to learn to show attention and affection. Show attention and affection. Again, that sounds a lot easier than it actually is. Attention and affection is how we build friendship in our marriage this idea of oneship, of leaving and holding fast, is this, this idea of, of being friends, the, the best friends. This is the extended part we talked about earlier. Remember again when you were dating, maybe how great your friendship was. I mean, it literally threw me for a loop. You know, people could see it in, in my face. Man, what's going on with you and how excited you were because you've met someone new and you're spending hours and hours with them on the phone. Or maybe not. I don't know if that's, you know. I know I hate talking to people on the phone. And if you've been in our church very long, I've hung up on you a few times. And I apologize for that. I feel like phone is just for exchanging information. That's why texting is the most brilliant thing in the world for me, right? None of the pleasantries straight to what do you need from me? No, it's a terrible pastor. I should not be saying those things. (laughs) I should go sell used cars or something. It'd probably fit better. But when Ashley and I were dating... This is before everyone had cell phones, right? We were using like the portable phone and I would like drain the battery on that thing every day just on the phone for three or four hours listening to each other breathe, I guess. I don't know what we were doing or what we were even talking about, but there's this idea that you want to become best of friends. We've got to give, commit to giving attention to make it a goal to make a heart level connection with your spouse every day. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 3 that we should encourage each other, one another daily. And many of us are better at living out that verse in our huddles or even at our workplaces than we are at home. We take that seriously for our huddles and our workplaces. We're going to try to text and encourage. We're going to try to be there and support. But when we get home, this kind of just all that is thrown up to the side. And that shouldn't be that way. Give attention and then also give affection. Affection is this physical expression of love. We have to learn to communicate on each other's level. We've got to learn to speak their language. This was probably the most recent conflict that Ashley and I had. And she realized she was wrong and repented. I'm kidding. She's not in here, so I can say whatever I want, right? No. Learn to speak her own language. And this is where, I don't know if you've heard of the book, The the Different Love Languages. Um, Man, what a great book to read to learn how to communicate to one another based upon their love, predominant love language, or how they feel appreciated. For mine, it's words of affirmation and and physical touch. And for Ashley, it's uh, like service. So, uh, and I've said this story before, I I bought her some uh, diamond earrings on like our fifth anniversary, and I was so excited and saved up, and I gave them to her, and she was like, oh, thanks. And that's all I got. You know, I thought more. Like a couple weeks later, she was at work, and I vacuumed the house, and she still talks about it to this day, right? Because it's acts of service. She felt so loved and appreciated because I always take time to do that. And we've got to learn to speak each other's language. And this is not something that gets easy. We just always default for how we feel love as the way we want to express love. And that's not what this is. Even, even the biblical language is not this. We've got to learn to show attention and affection to speak their language. I love, in first Peter 3, it says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. In an understanding way, a way that she understands, a way that, a way that she comprehends as your expression of love. This takes a lot of work to accomplish this and showing proper affection takes incredible work in pursuit. Maybe a question you would ask your spouse every week. Now, again, maybe Ash and I playing this out too much. On Sundays, we sit down and we kind of evaluate our week, and this is when we gospel each other. It's really hard to gospel each other in the midst of crisis. So Sunday nights, we're going to have these conversations. Maybe you would have a conversation today. You would ask your spouse, did you feel like I loved you well this week? What could I have done differently that would have better communicated my love? You know each other's art for each other, but sometimes we just don't communicate that very well we also got to invest into our, into our schedules different ways, practical ways to build your friendship. Again, we are talked about this, but uninterrupted time every day. One of the things that helped us with this is we took the TV out of our room. Nights at home with you and your family. You ought to have at least one night, possibly more, that you carve out time to be together as a family with no agenda. I think you ought to have a date night doesn't have to be expensive. Most of Ashley and I's date night are the 99 cent menu at Wendy's and walking around Target, which can get expensive, the <laughs> Target part. I think you ought to have at least two of those a month if you can't fit one in every week. And listen, I know this is difficult. This is why our community groups are great for this. Community groups serve each other in this way. Have a night where kids are just dropped off at your house so that the couples can go have a date night. And some of us are willing to offer that, but we don't want to ask that of someone else. Just get over that. If we're a community group that is committed to loving and fostering the love of God and being a display to the world, then we need to do this for each other. I think you need to have a few overnight retreats a year. Whatever it is, you need to find rhythms that work for you, but have a plan. With no plan, none of us in here will do this well. It takes a lot of work. If you love your wife, this is something. If you love your spouse, you'll do this. You know, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. It's I don't care enough to schedule things like this in. You communicate volumes to your spouse if you intentionally work towards this. Maybe you'd ask of yourself how well you communicate to your spouse. Maybe you'd ask yourself, when's the last time you apologized to your spouse? If you're a sinner married to a sinner with little sinner kids living in a sinful world, you're going to offend When's the last time you went up and really apologized? I'm sorry for the way I handled that. I'm sorry for the, I, sorry for the fact that I haven't been doing these things well. I'm sorry I got so caught up in work that I ignored my role as a, as a dad or as a husband or even as a, as, as, a, as a follower of Christ. When's the last time you maybe apologized? When's the last time you really appreciated your spouse? Not just with a little word, maybe a handwritten note that really expressed from you your heart for them. We've got to commit to attention and affection. Let's move on. I'm almost out of time. We've got to commit to resolve conflict. And we could just do a whole sermon on this one. Most of us tend to run from conflict, letting offenses build up until something blows up. But that is not the biblical way. The biblical way is one of confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Look at this Colossians 3 passage with me. Again, this is talking to just believers, but it's certainly true and played out in marriages. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. I love just even that part. Just if someone else has, if you if one has a complaint against another, just forgive them. We say this all the time here that it doesn't even have to be like restored communication in this. But if if there's an offense, just forgive, just give it to God and forgive them. And above all else, put on love. It says in verse fourteen, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Moving on in 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We're talking about committing to resolving conflict. And I love that all the adjectives used here talk about pressing through conflict, forgiving one another, having compassionate hearts with kindness and humility and meekness and patience and bearing with one another in love. There's a guy who wrote a book called Crucial Conversations. This is what he said of pressing through conflict, if you don't talk it out, you will act it out. And your behavior will always provoke a response. If there's conflict, and this is not just true of marriage, this is any relationship. Relationship with your boss, relationship with coworkers, relationship with neighbors. If someone does something to offend you, you've got two choices. You can suppress it and then you're going to act out like you know, your coldness or hatred towards them or your upsetness towards them. Or you can talk it out. If you don't talk it out, you're going to act it out. And we could, again, build a whole sermon on what this means of conflict resolution. But let's. I think in Ephesians 3, it kind of lists a few things here that we can look through. This is maybe how we talk through these things, how we resolve conflict. The first is to be thankful. When you enter into something with a thankful heart, not a vengeful heart or a bitter heart, when you enter into something with a thankful heart, everything changes automatically. He says, be thankful in verse 15. In verse 16, he tells us to always be filled with the words of Christ. Any kind of conflict resolution should begin with prayer, and I would encourage you, both of you, to pray. It is very hard to pray to the God of the universe when you're mad at your spouse. Most times, this is what breaks me right here. Just the discipline, when we're talking through conflict, we're both going to pray before we kind of hash this thing out, and God, I mean, like the surgeon that he is, will just break my heart. I can't even continue to talk because I'm weeping at my own pride and arrogance. Down in verse 19, in the same passage, Paul reminds husbands to love your wives and don't be harsh with them. I think that's the third thing to be thankful, to be filled with the words of Christ, and never to be harsh. You have to maybe ask yourself do you really want what's best, or do you want her or him to know that I'm right here? To overlook minor offenses. It drives me crazy when I'm talking to a couple and they're telling a story. I, I went to the store last Saturday and the other spouse interrupts. No, it wasn't Saturday. It was Wednesday. Like, who cares when it was, right? All that does is kind of, is kind of tear down one another that you can't tell a story the right way. The, overlook minor offenses. So what if you, she hasn't brought you coffee and you brought her coffee, you know, every day of, of your marriage? It, overlook minor offenses. Again, this is going to... Who cares where you put the bread, Right? Don't even eat bread, right? It'd be very better for you. Overlook minor offenses. This is going to go so far in your marriage. You know, it's the minor offenses that normally are the things that just take root in us and cause bitterness. And then finally, seek to understand. Commitment with a heart that really wants to understand. All right, the last commitment is commit to adjustment and change. You have to commit to adjustment and change. And this is, again, an interdependence. It takes both sides to really do this. Again, Tripp says this, I think I have this on air. Marriage is really just a long-term exercise in gardening. The practice of pulling weeds is a daily necessity. We are all weedy people who need to pull personal and relational weeds daily that our marriage so that our marriage can grow. Sinners, which in case you forgot all of us are always drag sin into their marriages and the weeds of thought and decision and desire and motivation, word and action cannot be completely avoided this side of heaven. So pulling weeds is the necessary commitment of any good God-honoring marriage. Adjustment. This is two-sided. Some of you in marriage need to grow more than the other, but we all need adjustment because we all are sinners. And then change. Adjustment and change. Change represents the result of the adjustment. We don't just adjust temporarily, just like we don't repent just momentarily, but there has to be followed up with change. The Bible calls this repentance. Because we are sinners, we're bent towards selfishness, we're bent towards ourselves and away from God. This wrecks our relationship, starting with God, but being seen evident with others, especially in marriage. This is so true of the first and second commandment that Jesus gave. The first great commandment always defines the second great commandment. Always. To be connected to God vertically and then horizontally. That is expressed through fruit lived out to those around us. This is where we kind of get to communion. And I want this to sit for a minute. This is one of the reasons we do communion most weeks. It's time for reflection. It's time for repentance. I'll ask the band to go ahead and come on up. Communion, the reason we do it most weeks is just so this can sit. So you can just take the truth you've heard, let the Holy Spirit speak to you, and just screw it down a little bit in your heart. That these aren't words that are passing through your ears, that these aren't ideals of Christian virtue, that we're going to go out there and live a better life. But this is the gospel in us. We all realize we're sinners, and marriage shows us that on a daily basis. And relationships that are broken and fractured shows, shows us that on a daily basis. And repentance should be a sweet word on our lips, that this is when we realize that we are sinners and we are hopeless, we are so desperately in need of a savior, but a savior has come. And for those of you who are believers, that you've placed your faith and trust in Christ. And the communion that we're going to take is going to remind us of that. It reminds us of how much we are loved and how much we should love. When we partake of the bread, we're reminded of the body of Christ. And not just his body and death, but the life that he lived of serving such a beautiful life. Never demanding, as it says in Philippians, equality with God, is something to be grasped, but laying down his life for us, taking on the form of a servant. What a beautiful life. We take the body, we remember that. And when we participate and we take the, the juice, we dip the, the body in, into the, the, you know, the bread, into the juice, we're reminded of the sacrifice that God made for us. But not only did he say that no greater love had any man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends, Jesus did that for us. We can be reminded through this external symbol. Paul warned the church in 1 Corinthians not to rush into communion, but to take your time, to examine your heart, to confess sin, and then participate. And my encouragement is the same for you today. Again, the biblical kind of parameters for communion, you don't have to be a member of covenant church, but kind of the things that the gospel lays out, the Bible lays out for us is that you would be a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and only hope for heaven, and you'd be living a life of obedience towards him. That's why Paul told that church in in Corinth. He said, don't take it unless you've examined your heart first. Don't rush into it. Examine your heart. Ask God to reveal anything that's sinful and then confess those things to him and then participate with a clear conscience. And so that's my encouragement. I'm going to pray for us and the band is just going to play softly and we're just going to give you some time to do that. I'm going to be standing uh, over here to uh, my left and your right. If you want to talk to somebody, I'd love to talk to you. Maybe pray for you. Maybe if you're not a believer, you're not participating in this time, maybe you just think, God, if you're real, would you speak to me? I believe he will. Let me pray for us. We'll move into the time of communion. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this high ideal of marriage that is impossible. Without your power and love and grace in us, I pray we wouldn't walk out of here all beat up because of these hard words, but we would walk out of here so secure that you love us, that you're God who stays, that we could walk into marriage and even communicate that very same thing to our spouse. Through those that don't know you, Jesus, I pray today would be the day they take a step towards you. They cross this line of faith, confessing their sin and placing faith and trust in you. Father, you're so good to us. Speak to us now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.